Father in heaven, we ask that you will be with us as we once again delve into this most important subject. May you quicken our minds uh, after a filling meal. Uh, we pray that you will help us to remain alert and our minds to be clear as we contemplate the th- deep things of your word. May your spirit teach us. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's review. What are the three styles of Bible study that we discussed this morning? Anyone want to venture a guess? Exegetical? Topical? And allegorical. And what is the significance of the order in which they're listed? It's a linear progression. You want to start up here and move your way down. Because we get into trouble, we start down here and work our way up. Because reading the Bible as it reads forms a foundation to make sure that what we are understanding is actually coming from God, from the Bible, rather than we're inserting our own thoughts into it. Very good. What are the three questions that we need to ask in our Bible study? What's the first one? Okay, very good. What does it say? And this corresponds to observation, gathering the facts, gathering the data. All right, what's the next question? What does it mean? Okay, that's all. Another word is interpretation. Generally, how many interpretations are there for a given passage? Generally, there's one. There are dual applications once in a while, but usually the Bible will tell us one is that way. By the way, I'll just throw this out there. Matthew 24, when Jesus was sitting on the Mount Olive, and they said, He was saying that not one stone will be left upon the other in the temple. The disciple says, when shall these things be? Meaning, when shall the temple be destroyed and of the end of the world? So Jesus goes on to describe in Matthew 24 the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. You see, he's talking about two different things at the same time, and the Bible tells us when that's happening. Okay, third question. Whoops, I let the cat out of the bag. You already knew the answer. What does it mean to me or to us or to whatever group that we are seeking applications for? And the illustration was that you might have an interpretation of a certain tool or object. That's what it is. A nail is a nail. A toothbrush is a toothbrush. But the uses, the application for what that is might be varied. A toothbrush is not just for brushing your teeth, right? I mean, we use it to clean the small places around the sink, and, you know, you can do it, use it for different things, but you know what it is. So, before we go any further, I felt impressed just now to go back to a verse that we did not look at this morning. It's found in Isaiah chapter 28. And this is in relation to what's on the screen right now. It has to do with... um, the three questions on the right, as well as exegetical topical study. And uh, you'll see why this text has so many applications to us right now on so many levels uh, in a minute. Let me flip it open in both Bibles, and we'll see um, how they compare. Well, the good news is that uh, both these both versions actually use a similar word. So I'll just read from the King James. It's basically the same. Isaiah chapter 28, we're going to read verse 9 and 10. And this is a common verse used to teach us how to study the Bible. Tell me if you've heard this before. Verse 9. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here, there, here a little, there a little. Have you ever heard this verse before? Particularly verse 10? So how do we normally explain this verse? We say, the proper way to study the Bible is precept upon precept. What's a precept? What's another word for precept? Teaching, but more specifically, the word precept is another word for rule. Okay, rule upon rule, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. What do we understand line upon line to mean? It's just like one verse after the other, right? That's how we interpret it. And then here a little, there a little. This is where it gets really fun, right? We say, oh, so that means we need to pick verses here a little, there a little. 
But doesn't that sound a little dangerous to be... It sounds like proof texting, right? So we use this verse to teach how to study the Bible, but the ironic part is that we misinterpret this verse. That's the irony. That's why I felt impressed to go back to it, because we can analyze this on several levels. Number one, when we look at verse 10 in isolation, it certainly sounds that way. Here a little, there a little. So if I just pick a few words out over here and I find a few words over here, here a little, there a little, that's what the Bible says. But is that really what the Bible is saying? Let's look in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? So is, are these verses actually talking about God teaching, God's teachings, making us learn, and his instruction? Is this? Yes. It's pretty clear. That's what he's talking about. But he's asking a question. To whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Who are the people that God is about to teach? Tell me based on verse 9. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. What kind of people are we talking about here? Talking about babies. What does that have to do with anything? Think with me. What is, G- what is God saying here? He's saying, how am I going to teach my people knowledge? How am I going to teach them doctrine? To whom am I teaching? They're like little babies that have just been weaned from the milk. And when you wean a baby from the milk, what do they start eating? Solid food, right? And that's why Paul later on says, ye still have need of the milk of the word when ye shall be eating the meat. That's another connection there. But this is fascinating because it's within the context of verse 9 that God is actually saying, I am going to teach you knowledge like I'm going to teach knowledge to a child who is growing up, a baby that's been weaned from the milk in the growing up process. And how do, how do we do that? Well, verse 10 explains when there's a child and you're teaching them, first you just tell them the rules. Precept upon precept. Don't go out in the street. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't eat between meals. You just tell them the rules. That's how you train them. And then, line upon line, meaning you educate them to read. You educate them through the writings of the law. And then, here a little, there a little, what that means is, when the child is, has a learn, uh, as, as when I was um, in teaching, my instructor would say, look for the teachable moments. So the child will have a teachable moment, here a little, teach them. And then they're going to be going out and they're going to hurt themselves, they're going to scrape their knee. There a little, teach them some more. When you wake up in the morning, teach them within that context. When you're out in the field working with them, when you're playing with them, here a little, teach them what I'm trying to give them, the knowledge, and there a little. It's not talking about proof texting. It's illustrating how God teaches his children as a parent teaches a child who's just been weaned from the milk. Does that make sense, yes or no? So what is this saying? Does this still actually give us counsel on how to study the Bible? Actually, it does. It tells us that there are certain times in our Christian experience we just need to follow the rules. We may not understand, but sooner or later we will if we continue the growing process, just like the child. And then you need to study line upon line. Study the text. Read the scriptures. And here a little, there a little. As you continue in your journey with God, God will instruct you here a little. In this unique experience that he's brought you through, he's going to instruct you. There a little. When you go through that other experience, he'll teach you a little bit more. Do you see the big, big difference in how we interpret this verse? It's still applicable. It still teaches us how God educates us. But this is no uh, blank statement that allows us to willy-nilly proof text. If that's clear, let me hear you say amen. Amen. All right. Very important. It's ironic that the verse that teaches us about how to study the Bible, we misapply using improper methods. 
All right, so let's continue here. Let's review, continue. So this morning, our message was a Bible study. So I want to ask you, which of the three was it? Which style? Was it an exegetical sermon or Bible study? Was it topical or was it allegorical? How many of you think it was exegetical? (laughs) No hands. Topical? I see like two and a half. It's like (laughs) allegorical. Okay, about the same number. Most of you didn't vote. (laughs) Okay, so maybe before I give you the answer, we need to uh, think through this a little bit. Exegetical sermon, what should it have looked like? It would have been a verse-by-verse method, right? I take a passage and I just break it all down. We did do some of that, right? But it wasn't just one passage, right? We had a number of passages, and all of the passages were connected together, right? What was the topic of our Bible study? Making disciples of discipleship. And did we have any strange symbolism? We didn't have strange symbolism, but we did have some symbols, right? So we had the branch and the vine. But generally, so I can sort of see where your confusion might be, but in general, the approach that we took was topical approach. So it was a topic of saying, okay, what does the Bible have to say about discipleship? Jesus says this, make disciples. Now, what else does the Bible have to say about that? So it's, it was a topical study, but yes, indeed, just like we said this morning, in order to do proper topical study, you must do some exegetical work on the passages that you're putting together to make sure they're actually talking about the same thing. And yes, there were some allegory because Jesus was actually using the symbol of the vine and the branch to illustrate the, the abiding experience. So yes, there were all those elements involved, but in general, this was a topical Bible study. Okay, so let's take a look. The topic was discipleship. And what I have here are just the four main passages. These were the four main passages of our Bible study. And basically, I'm going to give you in like 15 seconds the whole sermon. And you're going to be like, couldn't you have just done that and spared us the 45 minutes or whatever? But here are the passages. So Matthew 28, Hebrews 12, John 15, Luke 14. Those are the main passages that form the structure of our study, right? And this is what I did. I studied each of those passages and I extracted the key points, one of the key points that link up with all the others. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, obviously there's a lot more to it than this, but I saw there that's the command to go make disciples. Okay? How do we make disciples? have to teach them to obey and all that kind of stuff. And then Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, the purpose of God's discipline is to help us bear fruit. All right. And then John 15, 1 through 8, tells us that abiding in Christ leads to fruit bearing, which is an evidence of discipleship. So all of a sudden, these three verses just got connected together. And then Luke 14, we take a look to see what Jesus has to say about the cost of discipleship. What does it cost us to follow Jesus? And that's it. That's the whole message. The end. So, it sounds very simple when you look at it summarized like this. But what we're doing here is we are taking a large amount of information from all of these passages and distilling it. So it's a process of you have a lot of information coming in, and how do you organize it? How do you systematize it? How do you get the framework in your mind so that the outline works to see the connection. So the illustration I gave this morning was each one of these stories or these passages are two-dimensional plane. It's like a sheet of paper. And then you stack the four sheets of paper and you're looking through all four of them to see the connecting points. And so what I want to do this afternoon is to take one of these passages one of these passages, and we are going to, let me go back here, we're going to do some verse-by-verse study together, and then we're going to take a look at 
an allegorical study of that same passage. All right? Because we've done the topical, so we're going to do the other two. So that's what we're going to do, the balance of the time this afternoon. And the passage that we are going to zero in on is Hebrews chapter 12. So let's go there. Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be spending quite a bit of time here. And we are going to take it verse by verse. But before we do that, let me get my Bibles here, turn to the right pages. And we're going to ask a few preliminary questions to get ourselves in gear. So Hebrews chapter 12 is found in the book of Hebrews. I think we already knew that. But here's a tougher question. Who was the author of Hebrews? Okay, Paul, I hear Paul. Does the book of Hebrews itself tell us who the author was? It doesn't. And there is actually quite a debate ongoing for a long time about who the author of Hebrews is, was. So I'm not really here to settle the conflict. However, I will mention this. The reason why I believe that Paul was author of Hebrews, because Ellen White says so. <laughs> so... I don't, that's not a cop-out answer, really. Um, there are other evidences, ev- other evidences that you can look at that seem to indicate that. But let's just go with that. I, I tend to trust Ellen White pretty, pretty much. So, most likely it was Paul. Okay? So that tells us something about who the author was. And Paul, we know the history of Paul. We knew who he was. What was his background? He was a Pharisee, right? Fr- from where? From Tarsus. He did not grow up in Jerusalem. What race was he? He was a Jew, obviously, if he was a Pharisee. What was his um, historical impact on the Christian church? Was it all good? It was good and bad, right? And you look at his biography, and you can look at his life, and it will inform a great deal of what he has to say in the book of Hebrews. All right, next question. Who was his audience? The book of Hebrews was written to who? The Hebrews. Oh, yes. But this is actually very significant because all of the other epistles that Paul wrote were to who? Gentiles, I heard it. Right? To the Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. What is the difference, do you suppose, between writing to a Gentile audience and writing to a Jewish audience. Do you think there's a difference? Yeah. Yep. Right? I mean, I think you probably have a lot of thoughts in your mind, so I'll take your silence as you have so much information to share, you don't know where to start. It's okay. So the audience, a Gentile, what kind of foundation do they have in terms of understanding the gospel? The Gentiles, really nothing, right? But the Jews, they have the whole Old Testament. Plus, they have this Jewish ceremonial system, which is a double-edged sword. Because a Hebrew sanctuary service points to Jesus, and it gives a foundation to say, look, you have been studying this all, you've been doing it all throughout the generations, and here's a fulfillment, ta-da, Jesus. But at the same time, they're still clinging on to the old ceremonial system, because we've done this all our lives, we've done this for generations, how can we get rid of it just because Jesus has come along, right? So there's a dynamic going on here with the Hebrew Christians. And you can read in the book of Acts, again, historical context, to see even within the early Christian church, they had a big debate about circumcision. We've done this all our lives. In fact, we go back and Moses was almost killed by an angel for not circumcising his son. This is serious business. And now you're saying we don't have to circumcise the Gentiles? How can this be? Right? This whole context is, is, is the backdrop just by asking who was the audience of the book of Hebrews. So when we come to the book of Hebrews and we read it, we begin to realize there is a real milieu of, of issues going on in which this author is speaking into. And this forms the background, the context. All right? And that's actually what I just skipped, 
skipped ahead, the historical context. What happened to uh, the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70? It was destroyed. Was it foretold? Was the destruction of Jerusalem foretold? We mentioned Matthew 24 earlier, right? Do you think the author of Hebrews, whether he's Paul or not, a believer of Jesus, one who studied the prophecies, do you think they understood what was about to happen to Jerusalem? Better believe it. So there is a context here in the book of Hebrews of who Paul is writing to and what circumstance he's writing into. Okay? So these are some of the questions that we can ask when we are doing exegetical study. Before you even get in there to the text itself, get your bearings. What's my context? What is going on? What is he saying? Who is he talking to? What might be some of the issues? All right. So a couple other items here. Let me just, before I go any further, under historical context, something happened, right, at the, at the cross. There became two Israels. There was a literal Israel and there was spiritual Israel. There was an earthly sanctuary, there was a heavenly sanctuary. And this dichotomy, these types of issues, form the backdrop of all the issues of the book of Hebrews. Because I'll just spoil a little bit, spoiler surprise, spoiler alert, whatever they say. The book of Hebrews is all about the heavenly sanctuary, the reality in heaven being better than that which is on earth. Jesus is a better high priest than the Levitical priests. We have a better sanctuary than the earthly sanctuary. Christ was the better sacrifice than the blood of lambs and goats. The heavenly is better than the earthly. There, that's the theme of Hebrews and the sanctuary service. And so, this is a fairly significant background information when, as we dive into Hebrews chapter 12 because it gives us the context of who Paul is talking to. So let's go now to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we will start in verse 1. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. So earlier we were focusing on verses 5 through 11. And you'll see that verses 5 through 11 sort of go together. But we want the context a little bit before, a little bit after, to get a bigger, fuller picture. So chapter 12 begins, verse 1, with the word, wherefore. That's the King James Version. In the ESV, it starts with the word, therefore. They mean the same thing. Therefore, seeing we are compassed about with such a great, or so great a cloud of witnesses. So when do you use the word, therefore? At the beginning or at the end? At the end. So I, I liked what uh, one evangelist used to say. If whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ask yourself, what is it there for? <laughs> so, therefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are the cloud of witnesses? Chapter 11. Is that right? We are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. We don't need to go through all the details, but we did talk about Abraham briefly this morning in Sabbath school, right? He's one of the faithful few that's mentioned in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith as we have coined it. So at the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 11, after all of the evidences of faith that Paul has outlined, he says, therefore, seeing we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, these people, figuratively speaking, they're, they're dead in the grave, but figuratively speaking, they are witnesses. They are witnesses of us. And I can't help myself, but let's go back one verse. Hebrews 11, okay? Hebrews 11, verse 40, uh, 39 and 40. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, because they all go together. They weren't chapter divisions before. It says, and in these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. And these all, meaning all those listed in Hebrews 11, they have a good report, meaning God has good things to say about them. They have a good record in heaven. However, 
they have not received the promise. What's the promise? Well, you have to go back some more, and it's the promise of the heavenly kingdom, heavenly city. Verse 40 is key. God, having provided some better thing, again, that word, something better, some better thing for us, that they, without us, should should not be made perfect. Therefore, therefore, we are surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset us and let us run with patience as race has said before us. So what is Paul saying here? Look at all of these wonderful people of faith. They have a good report, but they're still dead in the grave having not received the promise. Why? Because they need us. Verse 40, they, without us, cannot be made perfect. Therefore, because they need us, because they need us, remember this cloud of witnesses, Abraham and Isaac and all of the Abel and all of those people mentioned in Hebrews 11. They're watching us because we need to finish this race. Because until we finish the race, they're not going to get the prize. You see where we are so far in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. That's the context. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, bridging the gap. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just continue reading. Verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me just read the whole passage and we'll come back through. Verse 3. For consider him that endures such contradiction of sinners against himself, Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou rebuked of him. Chastening again, same word as discipline. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? For if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much more rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening of the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous." Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness whereunto, or unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, again, there's that word, wherefore or therefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And we'll pause there. We're going to focus on these 13 verses. So let's go back through this verse by verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We already sort of gave the outline of this verse. It's connected to Hebrews chapter 11. We have a cloud of witnesses, those representing Hebrews 11, watching us because we need to finish the race because if we don't finish it, they don't get the prize. But notice what it says. How are we to run this race? We are to run this race by casting aside certain things. Every weight and what else? And the sins that so easily beset us. And let us run with patience. So what are the things that we need to cast off in order to run this race? Two things. Weights and sins. And then verse 2 tells us something else we're supposed to do. Looking unto who? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And now when we hear the word faith, we remember the whole previous chapter. Right? Hebrews 11 talks about faith. Jesus is the author and finisher of the faith. It's not up to us. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's all nice and good. Jesus is the goal of who we are to look to. All right. We'll come back to this point a little later. But the context here is casting off sin, 
casting off weights, and running this race. That's the context of Hebrews chapter 12 now. That's how we begin. And Jesus is the one that we're looking to. He's the finish line. He's the goal, right? And he's the one that's going to strengthen us. So let's look in verse 3. Verse 3 and 4. Okay? I'm going to switch over to the ESV here because I think it makes it a little bit clearer. Verse 3 says, Consider him. Who's him? Jesus, the same one that we're looking unto. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So what does weariness and faint-heartedness have to do with the race? Are we not told that we need to run the race with patience or with endurance? So what is he saying here? We're looking back now, connecting the verses. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says you need to run this race with patience. And verse 3 says, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility so that you won't be weary or faint-hearted. Meaning, if you, get, if you lose endurance, if you lose patience, what should you do? Look at Jesus. Okay? In your, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What does shedding of, or what does uh, resisting against sin have to do with running this race? Look at verse 1. What are we supposed to do with our sins? We're supposed to cast off our sins. And verse 4 tells us what might be necessary in order to cast off sin. What kind of effort is it going to take to cast off sin or to resist sin? Shedding of blood. Whoa. Now you understand why we need to look to Jesus if we get faint-hearted or weary. Because what we are told here is that run this race, finish this race, and the only way you can do it is to shed off your weight and your sins. And it's going to be a hard, it's going to be hard work. But if you get faint-hearted, if you get weary, don't worry. Look to Jesus. Why? Because he's done it before. And how did he do it? To resist sin, he resisted to the point of shedding his blood. And this might be referring to him going to the cross, but I believe this actually refers to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because that's when he was really tempted, right? He was tempted to say, enough, I don't have to deal with this. I can go home to my father, I can call upon him and he'll send all the angels to defend me. But no. The weight of the world was upon him, and he was resisting the temptation to walk away. And what happened? What happened to the sweat coming out of his brow? He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. So what does this tell us? What what does it look like to run this race, to shed off our sins, contextually speaking? Is it like, yeah, 5K, guys, yeah, let's raise some money. Is Is that what kind of race we're talking about? This is a long, arduous race. Hard, hard fought, mile after mile. It is going to be difficult. But what does the Bible say? Look to Jesus to run this race. And then we get to verse 5. So that's the lead up to what we were talking about this morning, right? And verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses, my, as addresses you as sons? Verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved of him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, this is quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. So, why is it now... Based on this context, we need to run the race. But to run the race, we need to sacrifice or to resist sin. And to resist sin, it requires bloodshed, effort to the point of shedding our blood. Why is it then now that is so significant that Paul brings up this point that, guess what? Don't be weary when the Father in heaven disciplines you. Because what's the purpose of discipline? Yeah, he shows us that he loves us, but what does discipline try to drive away from the person being disciplined? Would it be fair to say that if we are trying to help a child to stop sinning, to start obeying, 
that the means is discipline. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11 now, is actually set within the context of God is trying to help us to overcome sin so that we can finish the race, so that all of the people sleeping in Jesus from Hebrews 11 can finally reach their reward. You follow the contextual reading of these verses now. Let's continue. And by the way, Paul's quoting from the book of Proverbs here. Do you think this would have been significant if he was writing to a Gentile audience? Yeah, Proverbs? Who's Solomon? I don't know. But he's writing to the Hebrews. So he's quoting from the Old Testament and saying, look, you know this. You've read it. You've memorized it. I'm just bringing back to mind the scriptures that you learned in the synagogue. Okay? Continuing, verse 17. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we, you, you are illegitimate, or, I'm sorry, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. We read through this this morning, that's why I'm sort of going through this quickly. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And um, the training. That word comes up here. For what are we training? Do we not have a race that we're training for? We're training up a child, yes. That's the context immediately about training them to do what's right, to obey, to have righteousness, yes. But it's also training for the race. We're going to come back to that thought in just a moment. Verse 12, therefore, okay, so we're con- we've connected now from Hebrews, the end of Hebrews 11, run this race with patience, cast out your sin, consider Jesus, he's the example, to now God is disciplining you to help you get rid of sin, and it's evidence that he loves you, and this is how he does it. Therefore, now verse 12, having said this, having made these comparisons and having made this point, therefore, what should we do now? Verse 12, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Why is it important to lift up the drooping hands and strengthen the weak knees? Because you can't finish a race very well when you're like this. Does that make sense? The, the, the mental picture we should have at the conclusion of these verses, verse 12 and 13, Paul is now saying, therefore, stop being so downcast. Stop being so lethargic in your motions. You, yes, you have sin in your life and you have weights in your life, and I think his audience probably recognize that. And he's saying, yes, you might have discipline in your life, but don't be discouraged by it. Rather, pick up your arms, pick up your knees, make your path straight, and run this race. Because we have Jesus, who's not only our example, he's our author and finisher of our faith. And don't worry when God disciplines you, it is a training for you to cast off the sin and the weights that so easily beset us to finish the race. You see the flow of the con- contextual reading of this passage now. All right. So, let's continue. So what do we do? What did I do here? I simply outline. This is one of the techniques that I mentioned this morning about observation. We want to outline the book or the chapter, the portion that we're reading. So verses 1 and 2, I just said, run a race. We need to run the race. And when I say an outline, you can make it as descriptive as you want. This is not a homework assignment that someone's going to grade. It's whatever works for you. The point is just to, to use your mind in such a way to organize the facts in your head. 
This is just how I do it. You can outline it differently. So verse 1 and 2 I see as a block. Verse 3 and 4, striving against sin. That's particularly looking at Jesus, how he strove against sin. And then verses 5 through 11, I see that as a block. It's talking about the discipline of God's children, why he disciplines us, how he does it, what his goals are. And then verses 12 and 13, strengthen the drooping hands, weak knees, we're running a race. And this ties right back to verses 1 and 2. All right? So that's my outline. But now I want to ask the question. Does Paul speak of running a race elsewhere? You remember we're looking at contextual reading, which means sometimes we have to expand and say, okay, what other information do we have from related books? And when we talk about related books, it could be books of the same genre, books of the same historical period, books by the same author, the book of the same uh, topic, like prophecy, for example. So I want to think specifically of that historical period. Early church, Paul, apostles. Does he talk about running a race somewhere else? I think there's a scripture song. Some of you might know it. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I know I've sung it. Anyone want to venture a guess? There's one place that I could think of. There might have been others. Eunice got it. 1 Corinthians 9. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. So what we're doing here is to say, okay, what else has this author said about this subject to see if it can enlighten, broaden our understanding of what we have discussed? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24. Again, I'm in the ESV version. It says, do, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Are there any relationships between what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and what he's saying in Hebrews? Oh. He says, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. Now, of course, in this race that he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 12, he's not saying that you're the only one who's going to win. But what his point is, is don't be lazy. If you're going to run, Run with all you've got. If you're going to do it, make it count. And what is it going to take? What is it going to take? Self-control. Discipline. Keeping his body under control. Not running aimlessly. Temperance is what the King James Version uses. So here are some key words. We need to have determination. Run that you might obtain. We must have temperance. Self-control. And here's that word again discipline. So you see, the word discipline is, you know, we we actually use that when we talk about the athletes, right? The Olympic athletes, they really are disciplined in what they eat, when they train, how they sleep, all of that. He's saying, for us to finish this race, we need the same thing. And how does God help us? He disciplines us like he disciplines his children, to guide us, to teach us the values and how to walk or to run this race okay so that's observation we're just looking at what paul says in other places all right another thing i mentioned this morning a helpful way to help us in observation is to simply paraphrase what we just read so we're back in hebrews chapter 12 and here is my paraphrase i just paraphrase the different bullet points you can paraphrase this in other ways i say to finish this race we need to cast off our sins We need to look to Jesus, who is our example of how to resist sin. He resisted sin to the point of blood. Don't be dismayed when God disciplines us. It is evidence that we are his true children. Elsewhere, Paul expounds on the discipline needed to win the race. That's my paraphrase. 
Hebrews chapter 12. Here are some of the key points. Here's how I read it. And this is what stood out to me. And of course, again, I want to reiterate this. Your paraphrase will not look the same as mine. And that's okay. As long as you are sticking with the verse and you're not just going all over the map, as long as you're just rewording what is stated in your own words, that's good. And um, I do want to pause here to mention one thing. And that is, okay, I'll, I'll mention it here on this, on this slide. We're moving into interpretation now. We're moving into interpretation. So now with all of these facts that we've gathered, the paraphrase, we've put it into our own words, we have an outline, we know what this is actually saying, and we know what Paul says in other places, now we want to synthesize together to see, okay, what does it really mean? I mean, the meaning is pretty obvious in this passage. I have to say this is not the most difficult passage, which was sort of by design. But there are some things that we need to stitch together to synthesize for a clearer, broader picture. First of all, I want to remind ourselves who the audience was. Who was Paul writing to primarily? It wasn't to us per se. The Hebrews. So when he says, look to Jesus, is he not saying, look to the Messiah who has already come? Look to Jesus, not for another Messiah or to the earthly temple. Paul is saying, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, he's saying, look to Jesus as opposed to another Messiah to come or to the earthly sanctuary. And perhaps casting off our sins and weights in this race, we all know what sins are. But why does he use the word weights? Perhaps it's because they are weighted by the ceremonial law. They're looking at the sanctuary and they are chained to it. They can't move beyond it. It's a weight that's keeping them from finishing the race. And Paul is saying, yes, there are sins in our lives that individually we need to repent of and confess and give up, but there might be weights which aren't necessarily sins, but they're holding us back. So to the, to the Jewish Christians, he's saying, there are certain things we have to leave behind. Look to Jesus, not to the sanctuary. And then, of course, Jesus is the example, resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And Jesus has such discipline to resist sin even to the point of blood. So Jesus demonstrates to us the discipline that's needed, like an Olympic athlete that's going to win the gold medal. Jesus, he was so focused, he was so in the zone that he was willing to suffer the sweating of blood resist the sin. All right. Discipline is necessary to be a better runner in the spiritual race because it will help us to overcome sin. Okay, that's another application, or rather interpretation, uh, based on Hebrews chapter 12. But specifically to the original audience, the nation of Israel, has Israel been disciplined before in history? So many times. So many times, right? Babylonian captivity, the Syrians came, the northern southern kingdom was rent, and then, uh, of course, Egyptian captivity earlier on, and then uh, Roman captivity. But then again, they are to be disciplined again because Jerusalem was to be destroyed. But what is Paul saying? Don't be weary of his correction. The temple might be destroyed. Jerusalem might be sacked. But don't despair because... God disciplines as our earthly parents disciplines us. We, or those who are of the Jewish Christian faith, they have a chance to learn from the discipline that God imposed upon their nation. This is interpretation. These are some of the things that God was trying to communicate to them. Okay. So let's move on to application. So this, these are my applications that I gleaned from my own study, but you might have different applications for yourself, okay? 
So based on what we just read and the applications that we have come up with, or interpretations rather, my application is pluck up my courage and pick up my pace in this race. Stop being so lazy. Right? I'm too lazy in the morning. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to spend enough time studying the Bible. I'm afraid to spend so much time in prayer, whatever, right? We need to finish the race, and so I need that discipline in my life. So I just wrote here, imagine we are running for a gold medal in the Olympics, the determination and the discipline needed. That's the mindset that this passage now is instilling within me in my Christian walk, my Christian experience, the Christian race, rather. I need to have that kind of determination. Run that I might obtain the prize. Be disciplined, have self-control and temperance, and be willing to actually put in the effort. Because this is not just a stroll in the park. We have a whole cloud of witnesses depending on us, that they without us should not be made perfect. In a, in a sense, I like how uh, I've heard this described, and that is it's like a relay race. And they're passing the baton down through history, passing the baton, and we're the last leg. If we don't cross the finish line, the whole team loses. That's the kind of race we're running, and I don't want to let my team down. So that's my application. Stop being so lazy, and let's pick up the pace. Okay, another application. I can respond with confidence in spite of trial, suffering, and persecution by looking to Jesus and remembering what he suffered for me. He resisted to the point of sweating drops of blood. He, <clears throat> Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He did it for me. So what am I called to suffer for him? It's nothing compared to what he did. And moreover, a couple applications, pain is only a stepping stone to greater things. We, I ought to meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus. Application, based on Hebrews 12. Okay, another one. Running this race with patience means enduring discipline and overcoming sin. I sort of mentioned this earlier. There is going to be an ongoing effort required. It's not a one-time exertion. You don't run a marathon by just exerting yourself for a short period of time. It's a sustained, sustained effort. Okay, and so this I, I threw in here because this, because of the, the stage in life that I'm at, we're about to have children or a baby, and so reading about how God disciplines his children now has a different uh, application in my mind when I read it than, say, last year when uh, no baby was on the way. So here's what I found as an application. Disciplining my children is to lead them to holiness and to bear fruits of righteousness. So when I discipline my children, or let me just finish reading here, my role as a parent in raising my child is informed by God's plan for us. So I look at Hebrews 12 and I say, what is God's purpose in disciplining us? And it is to help us become holy, to cast off our sin and the weights, to run with patience, to be able to be the disciplined runner. And so when I am in the role of, quote-unquote, the role of God, right, to my child, now my responsibility is to work in partnership with God's plan in disciplining us. Does that make sense? And so this is a principle now when I look at my, my child, I hope to remember, I'm not disciplining them for my own convenience. My discipline must be in harmony with how God intends us to have characters developed in his likeness. And uh, I'm not saying that I've got it all figured out, but that definitely is a, a goal to strive towards. Okay, so... This is just a small sample of, uh, is there a question in the back? Okay, just, just one minute. We're going to be finishing this section real quick. So we are looking at exegetical study, the verse-by-verse -verse method. So we went through observation, interpretation, application, just focusing on this one passage. And now when you take a step back, looking at the topical study, you see that we just pulled out one piece of it in the discussion of discipleship. Because disciples happen to be those that actually run the race. All right, question in the back. Okay, re repeat the question for the recording. So the question is, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it's referred to as the sin which doth so easily beset us. And the question is, is that referring to a particular sin, like say a sin of pride or selfishness, something like that? Or if it's just the sin that we ourselves individually know about that we need to get rid of? 
here's how I read the verse. And I know I didn't dwell on this a lot because I was going through other things. It's simply the sin which so easily beset us. So whatever sin it is that besets you, that's the sin. So that's the way I read it. And in other places in the spirit of prophecy, uh, she may not be commenta- it may not be commentary on this verse per se, but there is a term called our besetting sin. And it might be, the way I see it is, is that particular thing that might be different for each person. That one sin cherished will neutralize the whole power of the gospel. So I don't see it necessarily as one sin that all of humanity faces. Uh, however, it's one of those places where I don't feel like there's a conclusive here is that thus saith the Lord. I don't know if that helps. Well, yeah, so I was saying, what other outside resources besides the SDA Bible commentary could we, while we're doing this, try to find out, interpret it? What other resources can we draw on? Well, I usually go to the SDA Bible commentary, any commentary last. Uh, it's really the spirit of prophecy. Uh, if it's outside resources, I look at the concordance. Okay, so you look at all of the different places where the word besetting and sin might happen, or a concept of a sin that trips someone up. Okay, it might be like the sin of Achan. He had a besetting sin. Sin of J- uh, Judas, Spirit of Prophecy, actually has something to say about that. The sin of covetousness in Judas's heart led him to actually betray his Lord. And in the spirit of prophecy, this is one of the things I did not include in the seminar because that's more like how to study the spirit of prophecy. But um, there's no substitute, I realized, to just reading a whole lot of the spirit of prophecy. Because looking through even the CD-ROM, the search is almost impossible to narrow down unless you already know what phrases you're looking for. And more than the Bible, she's not just using the same words over and over. But what I would do in your specific question is I would look up besetting sin. And there, there's a topical index in the Spirit of Prophecy. You can look it up. I would start there. And what usually happens is you, I read the chapter, and she uses that word. And surrounding it, it's in the context of discussing some Bible character or some incident. And then I go and I study that out, and then I realize, oh, that is what she's talking about. So that's the, the path that I would pursue. Does that help somewhat? And as I mentioned Friday night, no pain, no gain. The study of the Bible, there's no shortcut. It's going to take time. And we're in a society now where we can just, you know, find the instant answer with Siri on our phone or Google it. Doesn't work that way in the Bible, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it. So great question. Um, Added a few tidbits there about researching the spirit of prophecy. I know we could talk a whole day, whole weekend just about that because spirit prophecy in some ways is, uh, is a different beast. Similar, but not the same. All right. So this morning we did a topical study that used Hebrews chapter 12. And then we just now we went through a literal exegetical study. So we went through verse by verse, which neither of which are exhaustive, by the way. I'm not saying that we've unearthed all there is to say. It's just an example with the time that we have to go through it. So now I want to look at the prophetic interpretation. And Hebrews is not a prophetic book. I am not here to tell you that Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through or or 1 through 13 is a symbol of something, you know, that means something totally different. That's not what I'm here to tell you. But I am going to show you how having done this study prior helps us when we study the prophecies of Daniel Revelation. So, let's look at Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and I will read it in the ESV again. And just off the top of your head, anyone know what Hebrews chapter 3 verses 14 to 22 is speaking about? I think you said it, go ahead. Revelation chapter 3, yes. Church of Laodicea, that's what you said? Well, you are absolutely correct. This is the message to Laodicea in Hebrews, or rather, Revelation chapter 3. 
So let's read it together. I'm going to read it in the King James, and I'll read it in the ESV. It says, And unto the angel of the church at the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Reading through that, were there a few words that sort of rung a bell? A few phrases? ESV says, and I'm going to skip down a little bit, not read the whole thing. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Have we read about God disciplining as an evidence of his love somewhere before? Hebrews chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 3. Okay. Right before that, it says you need to anoint your eyes eyes with eye salve so that you may see. Is there something that we need to be looking upon? Yes. And then verse 21, he who conquers, that's in the ESV, King James says overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down on my father on his throne. Is there a throne that we're supposed to be looking towards? Is there a destination we're trying to get to at the conclusion of our race? So here are some key words. We need to have ISAF so we can see. We need to have discipline. God will discipline those of us whom he loves. It helps us to overcome. And as we overcome, we get to sit with Jesus in his throne. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 just to review, it says, Wherefore, we are seeing where we are compassed by with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let me just read it real quick. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. Do we have trouble with our eyesight? Looking unto Jesus. But where is Jesus? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So why should we look to Jesus? Well, Jesus, yes, he helps us overcome, but Jesus is the finish line. And if we finish the race and overcome, we get to sit with him on his throne. And then, verse 3 and 4, of course, we talk about resisting sin. And then, verse 5 through 11, discipline. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Look to the finish line. Jesus on the throne. Hebrews chapter 12 is relevant for Laodicea. So when we come through the study of the prophecies of Revelation, and we come to Revelation chapter 3, we look at Laodicea, and we wonder to ourselves, hmm, what does it mean when it says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten? We go right here to Hebrews chapter 12. Why does Jesus say, if you overcome, you get to sit with me on my throne? Well, Hebrews chapter 3 tells us how to overcome and why we're looking to Jesus on his throne. So Hebrews chapter 12 now helps inform our prophetic interpretation when we get to the book of Revelation. So you see, you see the progression, exegetical study, and then we can use it in our topical study, and then even in our prophetic study. Three steps, same passage. And so that brings us to the conclusion of our time together. Let me just run past you. Whoops. I'm sorry about that. Our last review for the weekend. So Friday night, 10 principles, foundational principles 
that shape our preconceived ideas, assumptions, preconceived ideas, or presuppositions, rather, as we come to the study of God's Word. We need to manage those carefully, or else we end up someplace we don't want to be. Three styles or approaches to Bible study, exegetical, topical, allegorical, in that order. Foundational, down here, and uh, more literal, down to more symbolic, up there. And then the three questions we want to ask. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Observation, interpretation, application. And if we spend our time right here observing, gathering the data, being disciplined in our Bible study, the interpretation and the application tends to flow out naturally. So our last quote for the weekend, first selected messages, page 18, paragraph 4. Brethren, cling to your Bible as it reads and obey the word, and not one of you will be lost. Wonderful promise. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given to us a word that is rich in life and ability to transform our lives. Lord, today as we spend just a few moments uh, practicing and demonstrating and thinking together, we realize that we truly have a lot, a long ways to go to better understand what you have taught uh, and what you would have us to understand. I pray that we will be diligent students, we will be diligent disciples, and that we might truly run this race as you have commanded us to, and to look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And so, Lord, we thank you for this weekend we've been able to spend together. May you lead us in the coming week ahead. May we be faithful uh, students of your word, henceforth and forevermore. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.